From the New York City area, welcome to the Badass Counseling Show, where the master badass himself, Sven Erlinson, takes you deep and gives balm for the soul, baby. Yes, we are balming today, and it feels good. Feels good to be given the balm. I hope it feels good to feel the balm all over your soul, baby. All right, so my name is Sven Erlens, and I am the host of the Badass Counseling Show podcast, and you have found us, and we're so lickety-zippity happy that you have. Just a heads up, we'll be, uh, and today is a lightning round, so I'll be taking listener questions as they roll in. I am presently live on Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube. Uh, I just want to say a heads up, we have upcoming episodes, counseling episodes. As you know, we do the lightning round uh, episodes, and those go up on Sundays. But on Thursdays, our counseling episodes go up, where people write into the show because they have an issue about this, an issue about that, and they would like counseling with me. If you have not heard our counseling episodes, please go on to Spotify or Audible or YouTube or wherever you get our podcast and uh, listen to those. They're really powerful and people open up, share their stories. We have upcoming episodes. If you would like to be on the show and counsel with me, please write into uh, production at badasscounseling.com. We have upcoming episodes on domestic violence, red flags, and money, the root of all arguments. And so if you have, uh, you want to be on the show, please write in on any of those domestic violence, red flags, or money, the root of all arguments. Um, please write in to production at badasscounseling.com. I am joined here in studio by KC, who we keep squirreled away in the booth, and Rob right next to me. Rob, talk to me. I think you're bombing, you're love bombing as usual. Oh, well played. Got it. Yeah. Well played. Aren't you a punny one? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, my fellow humans, what have you got? for me today. All right. How do I start making myself happy and not everyone else? You start by getting out of you the voices that are saying that you're more obligated to them than you are to you. That's what's blocking you. So even now, if you start to try to do something that makes you happy, you're going to stop. Do you want to know why you're going to stop? You know, you're going to, it's going to be fits and starts. You're going to start going, then you're going to lose the energy for it. And you're going to start again. You're going to lose the energy. It's like you have one foot on the accelerator and one foot on the brake. And you want to know what the foot on the brake is, is that you still have messages inside of you that say you don't matter. You're not important. What you want isn't important and shouldn't be pursued. You are still susceptible to the external voices of people saying, well, what about what I want? Or would you do this for me? And you don't have the ability to say no, do you? No, you don't. Right. That's because you still have some core beliefs that were put in you way back in childhood that say other people's needs, wants, feelings, voices are more important than yours. And until that comes out, you'll never live a life that honors you and where you're operating from your center. Next question. And by the way, the way you do that is all this stuff and journaling and getting my book. There's a hole in my love cup going through that process because it's written to take you through the process, getting my book, Badass Wisdom, and using these tools to get those voices, not just the pain and the fears. This is what makes my work different from most therapists is I'm going, taking you down to core beliefs. And I'm not talking about beliefs about God and religion. I'm talking the beliefs that you were taught to believe about yourself. That's what I do. All right, next question. Is there life after a 35-year marriage to a narcissist? I'm just recently divorced. Is there, ah, it's such a beautiful question. You can hear her heart in that question. Thank you for that question, Susan. I'm sorry for your hurting. I'm sorry for your own feelings of insecurity and worry. And there's a, there's a thread of hopelessness running through there, isn't there? The fear that maybe there isn't life after a 35-year marriage. If I were still married to my first wife today, lovely person, we're not married. We divorced, oh gosh, 26 whatever years ago. 
if I were still married to her today, it would be 31 years that we would have been married. So 35 years puts you roughly late 50s, early 60s, uh, generally speaking. I mean, if you got married at 18, then obviously it makes it you know 53, whatever. Um, is there life after a 35-year marriage to a narcissist? Yes, absolutely. There absolutely is. I've had clients in, 60, in their 60s, 70s, 80s, and in fact, the very first person I ever counseled in my life was an 80-year-old man whose wife had just died. Ever wanna feel impotent? That's the way to do it. Um, and so I've had people decide, I want to live. So if you're in your late 50s or if you're in your early 60s, any age really, but if you're, which you likely are if you were married 35 years and you're wondering if there's life after it, do you choose to live is the question, Susan. See, you're asking the wrong question. It's not as if it's a universal truth. No, after you've been in a 35 year marriage, there is no life after that. As if there's a universal answer. No, it's a choice. And the choice really is healing your own stuff healing all the pain, the sense of loss, the sense of not mattering. If you're in a relationship with a narcissist or what I call extreme taker, you've been the extreme giver and you were conditioned for that long before that marriage ever came around. I guarantee it. And that's the shit that needs to be addressed inside of you. But the question is, do you want to live? I mean, hell, if you're 60, it's reasonable to assume, very reasonable to assume you got at least 20, maybe 35 more years left, maybe more. But 20, I mean, shit, that's 80, that's 78, 80 years old. I mean, that's a very reasonable number, right? Do you really wanna spend 20 fucking years miserable? Fuck that. And I know it may feel like, well, God, I'm 60 and I got plenty of clients starting over at 60. I got plenty of people who are diving into therapy for the first time and the courage it takes because the courage is born of hope and, and, and misery and the pain of not being happy. And I don't give a shit if I'm 60. I wanna be alive for once, for the first time in my life. I want to feel it. I don't want to spend the next 20 years thinking, God, dang it, the best years are behind me. Or I don't want to spend the next 20 years thinking, why didn't I? You have to choose life. And it's not a volitional thing. Each day I choose life or whatever. No, if you decide I want to live and be happy, then that requires doing the work of getting out all the crud that is keeping you from being happy, fine person. Thank you, Susan. That was really an astute question and a, a place that came from a really authentic uh, authentic place, a question that came from an authentic place. This is interesting. Uh, listen to this one, guys. How do you tell the person you just started dating that you just found out you have cancer? You wouldn't even be asking that question if, uh, you know, how do you tell the person you have cancer if it was your best friend? You wouldn't probably be answer, asking that or if it were your, uh, you know, your favorite sibling. No, this is different right? And it's different because you're invested here in a way and you don't have a history of knowing generally what this person's responses are going to be. With your best friend, you know their response. Uh, they're going to be supportive and I'm so sorry and they're going to give you lots of hugs and kisses and can I drive you there and here, let me make some meals for you so you don't have to cook, okay? But with this new person you just started dating, there's more risk because you don't know how they're going to respond. And furthermore, the grand fear, of course, is they're going to leave you, right? Or worse, some people, the grand fear is they're going to stay, I know that may seem weird. No, some people fear the person saying, you tell them, I, I uh, just found out I have cancer. You fear they're gonna stay because you're gonna feel guilty. Some people would feel guilty if the person stayed because you'd feel like you're weighing them down. And you'd be like, just go be free. I feel like you're doing this out of pity. You don't really want me. Just go make yourself happy, right? The fear is that they're just doing it. They don't really wanna be there. They're doing it because they feel obligated. 
So in a way, you're in a no-win bind here. If you tell them and they leave, you feel sad. If you tell them you just found out you had cancer and they stay, you find yourself wondering, well, are they doing it out of pity or because they really love me and you never can really fully trust it? So you ask the question, how do you tell the person you just started dating, you just found out you have cancer? You tell the truth, you put it out there and you just watch how they respond. They may leave you, they might. Or they might say, wow, and, and they may need time, they're going to need time to deal with it. And if they don't need time to deal with it, if they just walk away right away, you just did yourself a favor then by telling them you have cancer. Because you just got rid of somebody who doesn't even need time to think about it. They just know, I don't want to deal with it. Probably a selfish person. If they, I mean, so the person may still walk away from me because it's like, I just can't take it on right now. But at least they went through the process of thinking about it and weighing it, which implies you matter enough for them to think about it and weigh it. Whereas if a person just right off the bat just walks away, they're saying, I'm not, that's not even close. I won't even consider it. You don't matter enough. No one matters enough. That's a selfish person. But uh, yeah, you're in a bind, Jody. And you just, you sit them down and you say, listen, I've got something serious I want to talk about. And I want to be upfront and open with you, tell you the truth. And the truth is that, um, you know, I found out I had cancer. What I would recommend before you have that conversation though, Jody, as I tell all my clients, whenever you're coming up on a big conversation or a big reveal or a big ask of someone, is sit down with a pen and paper and write a letter to the person that you do not give them and flush out everything you wanna say, flush out everything you're afraid to say, flush out how angry you are, how sad you are, how heartbroken, how betrayed, how disappointed, how frustrated. Anytime you're going into a situation where you've gotta deliver a hard message, whether it's you're doing it in writing or you're doing it in person or on the phone or in text, write it out first. Why? Because then you're gonna decharge it of so much of your emotion. You can still give them an emotional message, but it won't be the random. Have you ever been so angry when you're like fighting with someone on Facebook or some shit or you're fucking posting and your thumbs start to shake a little bit? You're so fucking angry. You're so worked up, right? And if you're if you're so worked up with this response or this thing you wanna say, if you're so overwhelmed with emotion that your thumbs are shaking, Think of how much, that's an involuntary response. You're literally, you can't even control your muscles completely. You're still hitting the buttons, but you're shaking. That's how worked up you are emotionally. Imagine if it can affect your involuntary uh, muscles and so forth, then couldn't it also impact your decision-making, how you speak, how you respond? Of course it could. So what I'm advocating is write out everything you wanna say, even if you don't ever say it, and you're never gonna give that letter to the person themselves. This is for your own purposes of flushing out all your shit so that when you walk into that situation, you are much, much clearer on what you wanna say, what you don't wanna say. I said that in the letter. I don't really need to say that in person. And then you can put it out there and you're less likely to be emotionally sort of zapped and getting all cranked up and charged or saying the wrong thing. But in the end, you just put it out there and you watch how they respond. If they say, hey, I gotta go, then thank you actually for leaving because you've just shown me who you are. Or if they say, hey, I wanna stay. Let's just take it one day at a time, I wanna stay. I think you're great. It's like, thank you, you've just shown me who you are. And then you gotta work on your own feelings of what's it like to have someone wanna stay with you even though you have cancer. All right, Rob, looks like you have a question for me. I do have one from uh, YouTube from Bobby Joe. Bobby Joe. Bobby Joe asks, or says, and asks, Sven, why do I think of my kid's childhood when I'm trying to read your book and fix my childhood? This book is hard for me to read. Does this mean I'm not ready to heal or am I too weak? Uh, Bobby Joe, I'm going to answer that question, Rob. And you tell me if I'm missing the question, all right, at some point. But 
I'm gonna answer the question by saying, you're working on my book, you're trying to work on your own childhood and thoughts of your own children's childhood is coming up. In other words, you were, you're raising of them or you're being absent, not raising them, whatever. There's so much fear inside of you uh, that you might be doing this shit to your kids or the residue of uh, your own childhood bleeding out onto your kids and all of that is coming up and you have immense fear uh, and Rob, am I hearing the question correctly and how I am answering it? Yes. Okay, thank you. Um, I, Bobby Joe, this is so normal. This is really so normal. In fact, I'm gonna give you a, a badass counseling hack, all right? When I'm in uh, session with clients and I, they don't wanna budge, they don't wanna open up on their own shit or they don't want to look at mommy shit or daddy shit that they did to them, if I have someone who doesn't want to look at their mom shit or their dad shit, and I know it's there, and when I know, I know. I've been doing this shit a long time. I know, all right? But they're just resisting and resisting. One of the hacks that I use is, listen, you've written your autobiography for me, and I require that of every client. You've written this autobiography, and you've listed these things. And since we've been talking, I've elicited, that, uh, elicited from you that your father also did this, and he allowed your older brother to do this, and your mom turned the blind eye, all these things. And you refuse to admit that they really screwed up, that in many ways they were really, really fucking bad parents. You don't want to look at that. You don't want to admit it. You don't want to talk about it. And they say, yeah, it wasn't that bad, or I forgive them, blah, blah, blah. I say, okay, now let me ask you this. Or, or they'll say, no, it wasn't bad, da, da, da. I'm like, well, you just said all this shit. How is it not bad? They'll say, no, no, it's no big deal, blah, blah, blah. And then what I say is this. I want you to imagine that we're watching the movie of your life. And guess who Steven Spielberg hired to play you in the movie? They hired your youngest son, who's seven years old, and you're being forced to watch this movie and all this shit that was done to you is now being done to your son. Would you ever allow anyone to treat your son or your daughter or your non-binary child? Would you ever allow anyone to treat them that way, the way you were treated? And they'd be like, no, fuck no. Oh, so you're acknowledging it was wrong. And why the no, fuck no? Because it's really wrong, isn't it? And would that be, would you be a bad parent if you didn't protect your child from that? And you'd be like, and the client would say to me, of course I would, exactly. So the hack is the back door. The hack is the back door that in looking at my own uh, stuff, very often we don't wanna look at our own stuff because we're so fearful that we're doing it to our own kids. And the truth is, if you haven't healed from your own childhood, you are doing it to your own kids or it is infecting your parenting in ways that you likely can't even see which makes it all the more imperative to do your fucking work. So great, if you're, if you're doing the work of my book, there's a hole in my love cup, and you're doing your journal work and doing these exercises and thoughts of your own kids are coming up, you need to be journaling on that as well, simultaneously. You need to be journaling on your fears and writing letters to your children. I'm so, I feel so bad that I've done this, you know, when you were eight and gosh, I'm still doing it now. I'm sorry, I swear to do better. Writing letters to them that you do not send and then uh, assiduously, vigorously, vociferously going into your past and doing the healing of your past so that you can short circuit the bad parenting process sooner, more emphatically and more thoroughly. But the fact that that shit is coming up as you're working on your own past shit about your own children's childhood is coming up, that's fantastic. You wanna know why? Because all those feelings, it's just more stuff, more feelings, more issues that you gotta deal with that you can now address. It's right in front of you, go for it. Anytime you're feeling any emotion, people, that's a gift. That is a gift from your soul saying, this is something we need to address. This is something we need to heal. This is something we need to look at. Good, great, now I've got some new meat. 
Now I've got something new I need to look at. It's just more healing. Your soul is just fucking, it's like you're in batting practice, man. And the batting machine is just fucking putting them in there. It's like, yeah, bam, bam, bam. You want those emotions to come up so that you can address that shit so that you can heal. Not just heal in the moment to get rid of that feeling, but to find the origins of it. All right. That was a good question. All right. Yeah. All right. I like that one. And by the way, she wrote back and said, exactly. Ah, great. So what'd you need my help for, Bobby Joe, if you knew the answer? I'm teasing. All right. Next question. Finding authentic connection and love impossible. Is it me? Uh, a few things. One, not impossible. It feels impossible. It feels like it's not happening. So it must be impossible. Um, and you're asking, is it me? Well, <laughs> you know, that gets into a blame thing. Yes, you're bad. You're no good. Blah, blah, blah. No, it's not that. But are there always things I can be doing to heal myself? Are there always things I can be looking at within myself, about myself, uh, and my um, walking into life? There are always things that I can look at. So you say, finding authentic connection and love impossible. So you're admitting, I want authentic connection and I want love. So then my question, my first question is the obvious one. Are you living authentically? I had a, I was uh, in a conversation with someone yesterday. I was in the middle of my workout and uh, got a phone call from an old friend and wanted to talk about this and uh, really this sort of issue. And she was saying, you know, Sven, uh, you know, these guys, I was seeing this one guy and he was a cop and whatever, and then he left me. And then I was seeing this other guy and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and somehow I asked or it came up, you know, she said, uh, you know, I don't, uh, you know, they don't want commitment. Once I start talking about, hey, you want to go exclusive? after whatever it is, you know, six months or whatever the uh, uh, amount was that she said it, then they walk, even though they were involved and they would come over each day and so on and so forth. But when I brought up commitment, I said, well, have you thought about bringing it up sooner? Just ask them right away. If it comes to the point, would you be open to becoming exclusive? And you can ask that, hell, ask it on the first date. Why not? Fuck it. If you want to, I would. If it came to the point where we're both really digging on each other, would you be interested in being exclusive? And then, you know, right away. Now they may backtrack on it later, whatever. Well, then you address that. But the bottom line is, and she, but her response to that was interesting. She said, Sven, um, I've always, uh, I always thought I'm not supposed to push too hard or put too much out there or really, you know, be you know, too assertive because every guy thinks all a woman wants is marriage or all she wants is commitment. And so I don't put it out there. I said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, just so I'm clear. You have something that you want, you know you want it, but you're deliberately withholding talking about it or talking about the potential for it later because you think that in order to basically sell yourself to guys, you got to play on their field. You got to play their game. In sports, in hockey or in football or you know soccer, I'm sure I know less about soccer, but there's this notion of they're playing the other team's game. So in hockey, if you, and I wasn't a hockey player, but I love that fucking sport. Uh, you know, if, if you got a fast moving team and your players are fast, but the other team has a lot of goons and, you know, they, they, they're jamming you and a lot of forechecking, a lot of into the corners and roughing you up and shit. If you're a fast moving team and you allow yourself to get caught in the corners, and if you're not moving past their forechecking and shit like that, you're getting caught up in the other team's game. Okay, so when you say, you know, I, when this woman said yesterday, then, uh, you know, they say guys, you know, are worried that every woman wants commitment. So I haven't been putting it out there that I do want it. You're playing their game. You're essentially selling yourself. You are altering the product yourself to make it more appealing. 
Now you can do that. It's your life. Do whatever the fuck you want. But don't tell me you want authentic connection. If you're doctoring what you want, if you're doctoring your sales pitch, if you're, you know, changing, contorting to be more likable, don't tell me you want authentic. If you're being authentic, just be who the fuck you are. We counseled a woman earlier today and she said, you know, I was always taught that I'm too emotional and too loud. And I said, fuck, I'm emotional and I'm loud and I like me. I like you. And there are plenty of people that like emotional and like loud. And there are plenty of people that like quiet. And there are plenty of people that like all the derivatives in between, gradations in between. So the question is, are you presenting yourself authentically? Are you just fucking being you? And that being you requires the willingness to not be wanted. Ever sat in front of somebody, you've been on a date and you know, they look good on paper. You found them on the dating website or whatever. They found you, whatever. And you're on this date and it's like, nice person good looking, nice sense of humor or intelligent or whatever you like in a person, right? Playful, you know, banter, sarcastic, whatever your thing is or if things are. And it's like, this is a lovely person, but I just don't feel the connection. You know, the chemistry, the spark, whatever. I just don't feel it. That's okay. It doesn't mean they're a bad person. It doesn't mean I'm a bad person. It's just, the spark's not there. So they can still be a lovely person. All right. So in other words, then, then when we part company, if they don't call me back, that's okay. Because, you know, they didn't feel a spark or I didn't feel a spark. Doesn't mean I'm a bad person. But you've got to be willing to put your authentic self out there and have someone not have feel the spark with you. That's okay. I went 10 years. My second marriage ended in 2004, and I met my present girlfriend in 2014. I fell in love once in that time in the middle. Uh, didn't last long, but uh, 10 years. So, I mean, you gotta get, you gotta be willing to go it alone and be on your own and find joy and create a life that makes you happy knowing, oh no, I gotta have it right now. Fuck it, fuck it. Oh God, I, I, I gotta have it right now. No, no, you don't get to determine that. We don't choose love, love chooses us. The gods decide, so to speak, metaphorically speaking, when love happens, you can't force it. All you can do is be authentic. So if the question is, if you say, finding authentic connection and love impossible, is it me? My question is, are you truly being authentic in all things? And then are you willing to let go when love doesn't come on your agenda? And just trusting that life can be happy until it does come. All right, much more to come right after this short break. I counseled with Badass Counseling for about four months and Sven completely turned my life around. He kicked my butt, no shit. He made me do homework too, but I was so ready for a change that I just did it all. I'm telling you, he changed my life. Thank you so much, Badass Counseling. This show provides soul counseling intended to entertain and inform and is not medical advice. Now, back to the badass. Yes, we are back with a lightning round. Taking listener questions, we are live presently on TikTok, Facebook, and YouTube. And for those of you who are uh, frequent YouTube users, we are uh, increasing our presence over there, a lot more content up there. Um, we invite you to be subscribe over on YouTube to Badass Counseling. If you are a Twitter or a Facebook or a Insta or a, what's the other one? TikTok, whatever, we're Badass Counseling across all platforms. I am not an imaginative person. All right, no, you're hewing to the brand. No, I just can't think of another name. Here we go, let's go deep, folks, here we go. I don't want to die, but I don't feel like I deserve to live. Been there. I don't know if you guys can see this uh, right there. I've got about a nine-inch scar up that arm. 
and got another one over here, matching set. Uh, that was about 25 years ago for me-ish. I don't know. I don't remember exactly, but uh, about 25 years, 24. Yeah, I've been there. Want to die? Don't want to die? Uh, don't feel you deserve to live? In my case, it wasn't deserve to live. I just was so, I just felt like every door in my life was a shut door, was a blocked door. You know, when it came to, th I, I eventually got to the point of suicide and, you know, I, I had lost so much in my life that was dear to me and I was getting so many blocked doors in my career. Yeah, it was hard. I, so I, I can say I know where you're at, that not wanting to die, but don't feel like living. And in your case, you feel like you don't deserve to live. Well, let's look at that word deserve. It's an interesting word choice because as I said, my suicide, I was in 12 year suicidal depression. Deserving was never part of the equation for me. Now, everybody's different, right? There's no right or wrong answer. I'm not saying deserve is bad, but it's interesting because what that implies is that you've been taught messages that you are not deserving, that you are less than, that you are not enough, that you don't have worth, that your existence is not important. Otherwise, you wouldn't be discussing the idea of deserve. Deserve. So if you actually want to heal from this shit, and I personally, I never had a therapist that really spoke to me for a very long time, that really I felt could move quickly in healing me. So I'd do it on my own. All right, so all of my method is my develop that I've developed on my own little bits and pieces I've cobbled together from here and there, but also all the crap I created on my own that I've used to heal people, even many, many, many suicidal people over the last 30 years. Um, and so what you've got to go into is identifying the, all the messages that you were taught about yourself, about your lack of worth. Because when you say, but I feel like I did, don't deserve to live, what you're saying is all you, what you're expressing in that one half sentence is all those messages you got your entire life about how crappy you are, how un, unworthy you are. And those aren't always explicit. This is the important thing to remember, Elmet. They're not always explicit. Very often, more often than not, they are implicit in the actions being done towards us or the inactions not being done on our behalf. So you've got to go into a deep dive into your past, begin to identify all those memories that have the emotional charges and that carry the message that you are bad, no good, unwanted, unwelcome, not good enough, piece of shit, whatever it is. Once you begin to identify that and the feelings that come with it and are doing the work of purging that in your counseling, in your journaling, in your letter writing, now then you're making some progress. And then that desire to die or to not be alive as it were, that will fade and fade and fade. And as a person who has been there, literally been there, I'm telling you as a matter of absolute fact, absolute fact, if you do the work, you can not only come out of this, you'll be happy. It's not about surviving, it's about thriving. Fuck surviving, fuck surviving. Sometimes we have to survive, right? But I'm all for thriving and you can reach a point and I'm living proof. You can reach a point where you're thriving, you're fucking happy, you enjoy people, you know what laughter is, you know that this, you can feel the sunshine on your face. You can visit places, be happy, have wonderful friendships, but you have to do the fucking work to heal. Because obviously ain't nobody around you able to heal you, right? So, you know, and keep looking for a good therapist. I'm all for that. But you got to start doing the work of going inside yourself and finding those fucking messages. This isn't just about the pain in your past. This is about the messages you were taught about yourself and your lack of worth. All right. So we're getting to a question here. Uh, is there a difference between hate and rage? In the book, you guys have heard me talk about and recommend the book, uh, The Sedona Method, before. It's not one of my books, but it's a tool. 
in this uh, act of healing, you know how I always talk about you got to get out the pain, the fears, and the bullshit beliefs you've been taught about yourself. My work is mostly in the beliefs that you've been taught about yourself. I believe that pain and fears are easier to get rid of, but to identify and uproot the core beliefs, that's the trickier part. And that's what my work is really, really, really about. But I also have some tools in my work on how to get rid of that. But the Sedona method is a really effective, very fast way. It's like journaling, but it's not, you don't use pen and paper. You can't, actually you can. There are elements uh, where I have my clients do it. But um, it's a tool for quickly taking out those sticks of dynamite that are always being triggered, quickly uh, decharging all those uh, memories that have emotional charges or things that are happening today that I feel strongly about. And so where I'm going with this is, besides this little plug for the Sedona Method, which I'm a big believer in uh, that book and get it hard copy if you ever get it, by the way. And it's a, it's a discipline. So if you're not a person who can do something repetitively, don't get the book, save yourself the time. But the question is, is there a difference between hate and rage? Well, I bring up Sedona because in Sedona, they have on pages 106 and 107, they have a list of nine different groupings, categories of feelings. And the primary categories are pride, love, anger, sad, peace, and whatever the other ones, um, grief, whatever. Anyway, rage and hate both fall under the category of anger. All of those are in the same, to use the words of a client of mine, in the same food group. They're all in the same food group, hate and rage. Um, and the truth is, some for some people, the word rage is a safer word than the word hate. You want to talk about a word that a lot of people don't like to use, feel bad using, or say, oh, I don't want to be a hater. They don't even want to use the word. In fact, when I hear someone in counseling use the word hate or use it in their autobiography, I am, know I'm dealing with a different animal here because most people don't even like to put that word on their lips or in writing. So is there a difference between hatred and rage? I mean, every person is going to have a different answer to that, but I would say this. Uh, hate, rage is odd as it may sound. Rage almost implies action. Hate implies the strongest of all human feelings in some ways, even stronger than love is ter in terms of feeling it. It's the, the heat of a thousand burning suns. Rage is, uh, almost uncontrolled or it's out. It's coming out. Uh, but rage is the is the nice euphemism for hate because a lot of times people who don't want to use the word hate will use the word rage. Hey, I don't want to be, hey, I'm not a hater. Once, some with some people, if I even bring up the conversation of hate, that they have hate towards a person, no, I'm not a hater, I'm not a hater. It's like, no, you are a ding dong. You have those that hate inside of you. And as long as you're carrying it around and not getting it out of you, you actually are a hater. Once you actually talk about it and express it and get it out, you don't even have to ever say it to the person themselves. But once you get it all out of you, you're no longer a hater. But as long as it's in you and you're saying, I'm not a hater, and you don't want to touch it, you're carrying it around. You're literally a hater. So let's talk about it. Let's get it out. Rob, do you have a look on your face? No, I'm just reading your shirt. Ah, I may not be very smart, but I can lift heavy things. Adding a little levity to the hate moment? Uh, yeah, love it. All right, fair enough. So there we go. Next question. All right, hey, let's give a Bronx cheer for Bruce Morris, 99. Hey, Sven, I have to interrupt you. Uh -huh. A Bronx cheer is... Oh, I thought it was this. Uh, no. No, yeah. I, Good, I'm, I'm glad I've been I'm, set straight. I'm sorry to correct you, honestly. But no, I'm glad you corrected me. I don't want you to give people the wrong impression. I, I tell people all the time, I don't mind being wrong. Fuck, set me straight. Uh, somebody says, how can I get help from you, Sven? Go to badasscounseling.com, read the counseling page, and then reach out to the contact page. But you have to read the counseling page first. All right, here we go. Next question. 
Wow, here we go. Listen to this one, you guys. This is really uh, open and honest, and you can hear the, the pain. Um, Efren asks, just recently became quadriplegic and now feel useless and don't feel like I can be myself. Advice? I'm going to say this. I guarantee I speak on behalf of every single person listening or watching the show right now, Efren, when I say I'm so sorry. I cannot even begin to know what that's like. I really and truly can't. So for me to attempt to give you advice on one hand would be a fool's errand and would make, would be, make a mockery of your situation because how could I possibly know what you're going through? But you asked, knowing that I have four functioning limbs, and you asked, honestly, and perhaps there's a measure of desperation in there, not knowing where to turn. So I'm going to give you an honest answer with, from the place of humility that I cannot possibly understand your position. And so I mean no offense, or if I say anything that um, minimizes your experience, I apologize in advance, okay? I'm gonna read your question again, and then I'm gonna answer it. Just recently became quadriplegic and now feel useless and don't feel like I can be myself. Advice, yes. First thing, um, if you have ways to express yourself, whether through eye motion ones or mouth ones where you can write, I have no idea how tedious and long and slow that must be to learn, or if you have access to those things, but beginning to do that, you typed this message, so obviously you have the ability to type or talk to text. You need to be journaling out all your fucking feelings. And I know that seems cliche or trite, but now more than ever, massive trauma, which is clearly what you're going through. I don't even know how it happened, but you obviously have massive emotional trauma, mental trauma, spiritual trauma. You have to start flushing. And if you're not with a therapist and you need to fucking do it on your own, use my book. I'm telling you, use it as a tool. Even though I can't know what your experience is like, I know what trauma is. I know what pain is. And I know what this is causing, how this is completely rewiring your own belief system about yourself because you literally said it. I feel useless and don't feel like I can be myself. And you know what, Efren? The truth is you can't be your old self anymore. Your old self in so many ways is dead, is done. It is. But I have had many clients over the years with Parkinson's, with Lou Gehrig's, ALS, with uh, different MS, um, and I've had clients who made a living because of their physical body and then they lose their health. I had a client who, uh, was a professional model at a very high level. And then part of her body gave out and she lost the very thing that she had been her identity and her living part of her face. You want to blow somebody's life up, take away their four limbs, take away part of their face when their identity was around that. So it's not just the feeling useless, but it's the loss of identity, right? As you say, I don't feel like I can be myself. And so what that requires is the, the long slog of getting all, out all of those feelings of loss, the grief, the unknowing, the fear, the uselessness, getting all of that out and flushing and flushing and flushing. And then, and as you're doing it, but then, and then asking yourself the question, do I have the courage? Am I ready to begin to write a new life? 
It's just like the woman who asked earlier, I've been married 35 years to a narcissist and what the hell is their life after this? It's a choice. And I know it's, it's, it could be insulting for someone with four able limbs to say to someone who just lost their four limbs to say it's a choice. And I in no way mean insulting, but it boils down to this. And I've worked with enough people with debilitating illnesses and diseases to know that in the end, it's still a choice. We know the success stories. I was at the graduation of uh, one of my daughters uh, from art school uh, this spring and the keynote speaker uh, had, uh, he had been the first blind man to surmount Mount, Mount Everest and all the seven major mountains, something like that. And he was not born blind, I believe. All right, so bottom line is this, is you have to do all the work of the healing, of getting out the pain, the fears, and all the bullshit beliefs of your old belief system. And you have to begin to grieve really what we're talking about. This is the death of your old self, fact. And there must be so much grieving in your writing, in your journaling, but also in, in your tear ducts, in your mouth, in your screaming at the heavens. All of it has to come out. And as you do it, you have to begin to, I know this is gonna sound insane, you have to begin to dream. You have to be open to new dreams, but you have to begin to dream and think about what could I do with this life? Now, you may not have the energy to do it yet because it just happened, but the day is gonna come when you are, as you do more of getting out all that crud that's bogging you down from inside, and as you begin to learn how to move with uh, whatever you are constrained to, and you're gonna have to choose whether or not you wanna live and to rewrite a new life based on being a quadriplegic. Maybe you choose to move mountains. Maybe you choose to keep doing the work you are doing, but tweak it such that it's more from the brain and the mouth or whatever it is. But you don't need me to remind you, and I'm not saying this to try to perk you up. I'm saying the notion that life is over is not true because we know there are Stephen Hawking's. We know there are people who live good, functional, useful lives who are paraplegics and quadriplegics. I actually worked for a paraplegic after I'd left the Air Force Academy. One of the first jobs I got was being the personal aide to a paraplegic of getting him dressed in the morning, washing him, doing a body bath and driving him to his work. And he was a big shot for 3M. I was living in Minneapolis at the time. And GM, or 3M is out there on the east side of uh, St. Paul. And uh, all that, I didn't work for him for a long time because the work wasn't for me. Um, and I, you know, and I admit that I, I, you know, but the bottom line is, is you can choose to be productive and in the end it will come down to a choice, but you have to flush out all of the pain first and all of the disorientation and grieve the death. I, I, I just have to stop here. Efren, that was, wow. I, I, I want to thank you for that question. Wow. What a powerful question, powerful admission. And I think every single one of us, um, bleeds for you, but also is also hoping you'll do the work and cheering you on, cheering you on. I'm going to take one more question, folks, and then we are going to uh, call it a day. All right. Uh, Michelle actually asked, what is your YouTube channel? It is Badass Counseling. And uh, all right. So like I said, if uh, you folks are YouTube people, we're doing much more of a push over there on YouTube. 
We've got the two point whatever million followers on Facebook or on TikTok and uh, hundreds of thousands over on Facebook, but we really want to make it more accessible for folks over there on YouTube because I know a lot of people spend time over there. So, all righty, Aphrodite, one more questione. Hey, wait, wait, before I get to it, Karen, thank you, Karen. Karen Drake, 215, is gets a gold star. She's the queen of the day. Karen Drake writes in, in all capital letters, I was a quadriplegic at 20, exclamation point, exclamation point. Then she says, now I'm 58. It gets better, pal. It really does get better, she says. Uh, fucking hell, man. Spend, I, I love take, people. Take, take a minute. Yeah, I love people. God, I love people. Uh, right. I do have one from YouTube if you'd All like. Right. All right, let's go. All right. Uh, my seven-year-old son has become very defiant and controlling and pretty nasty. I feel I've lost control as a parent and struggling to manage him. How can I gain healthy control back? I did leave his abusive father three years ago and have struggled with anxiety, so I understand why he may be this way. Yeah, and that's good that you understand that. I'm sorry you're going through that. This child is hurting inside, massive amount of pain inside of them, massive longing to express. You, you guys hear me talking about how I'm you know, teaching you how to journal, encouraging that, teaching the Sedona method, encouraging that, and trying to help you find words for your experiences. Well, you've got a seven-year-old child and, and seven-year-old children basically know how to express their experiences or express their feelings regarding their experiences in what, three ways? Yell, you know, get mad, uh, cry, be sad, or go silent. That's how they express feelings. Pretty limited repertoire, right? Because no one's taught them how and how to express their needs, but also how to express, to push out all of their feelings. This little boy, if he had an abusive father and a mother who's been anxiety-ridden, for uh, a few years, all of that's being absorbed by the child and he has no method for purging it out, right? We had, I made tacos last night and I like black beans in my tacos. And, you know, so I get the can of whatever brand I get. And, uh, and what do I have to do? I don't just open the can and pour it all into the, you know, this whatever I'm making in the saute pan. What do I have to do? I have to put the the beans in a strainer and sort of scrape them up because they stick and then I put them in a strainer and it has that goo, the sauce, and I run them underwater to get all the bean sauce out of it, right? I have to sort of purge it out. I have to flush out the dross. So give me the question again, Rob, if you have it in front of you. Yes, I do. My seven-year-old son has become very defiant and controlling and pretty nasty. Mm -hmm. I feel I've lost control as a parent and struggling to manage him. How can I gain healthy control back? I did leave his abusive father three years ago and have struggled with anxiety, so I understand why he may be this way. So I have a way of getting that goo off my beans. Your child does not have a way of getting the goo out from inside of him. The only way he knows is to be defiant. He's getting his needs met because at least when he's defiant, guess what he's getting? Do you know why children be defiant? Do you know why children turn to you know, uh, screaming or being hyper-emotional or anger or why kids will submerge their own grades or why they'll start stealing or why they'll become the bad kid or start doing drugs or start smoking or whatever it might be? Very, more often than not, do you want to know why? Because a child wants positive attention. We all want positive attention. 
It feels good, positive attention. But if we can't get positive attention, especially a child, if they can't get positive attention, a child will settle for, you guessed it, negative attention. Well, why the hell would a child want or anyone want negative attention in the forms of punishment or getting yelled at? Well, listen, little mister, you better, or being sent to the principal's office. Why the hell would anybody want negative attention? Because I'm not getting positive attention. Negative attention feels a hell of a lot better than no attention at all. Because no attention, no attention at all means you don't exist. I don't see you. What do you guys hear me say? We all want to be seen and to have the person stay when we see him. We all want that attention. So even if you're yelling at me, at least you see me. But if you've had a father who is abusive and you have a mother who's caught up in her own anxiety, no one is seeing him. Furthermore, no one is teaching him how to get the goo off the beans. He has to be given more positive attention. If you can't handle it right now, you get that child a therapist and maybe enroll that child in uh, Big Brothers, Big Sisters. They're all around the world. It's not just the US. It's a great opportunity for him to get, be getting positive attention from someone other than the parents. If you don't have the ability right now, that's okay, but you need to be doing your work on you so that your own crud is not inhibiting your parent. Your parenting, as it clearly is, this child needs attention. Needs. I mean, the simple answer is he needs love, but what he really needs is someone to give him attention, give him time, see him for the good that he has, give him the words, give him the hugs, give him the you know, attaboys, give him the you know, little gifts and doing things for him. But then in the end, someone needs to teach this child how to get the goo off the beans. Someone needs to teach him appropriate ways for expressing what he is feeling. Feeling wheels, you know, that sort of thing. If they were a teenager, journaling, those sorts of things, he has to be taught that. And it sounds like if you're really caught up in a lot of your own stuff, then getting him a therapist, he should have uh, He should have a therapist. And, you know, if you're thinking, for side note, for anyone considering divorce or something significant in the life of your child, your child should be in therapy before the divorce happens so that when the bomb drops, they've already got someone that they feel comfortable talking to. If you see it coming down the road, please, please get your child in therapy. And it's not optional for your teenager. If your, if your teenager broke their leg, would it be optional to go to the doctor? No, we're going. And he, I don't care if you just sit there and don't talk, you're fucking going. And they will open up, but they gotta fucking matter. But yeah, you, gotta, you have to teach your child how to get the, the goo off the beans. It's, it boils down to attention, love, mattering, because the child is hurt and angry and taking over. And see, that's another bad sign. You said basically use different language, but the child is sort of taking over and running the show. That implies how there's no central power source. See, if, 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 if there's no central power source, the inmates are gonna be running the asylum. The children take over. And that's when the parents aren't doing their job of having proper boundaries, everyone's being treated respectfully, but also all the, the inmates, so to speak, all the children are getting their attention, getting their love. So it's simultaneously a couple of things. And, if, and here's one of the things, one of the biggest lessons I learned my very first day in a live uh, restaurant as a waiter. I was working at Polo Italia, doesn't exist anymore, in St. Louis Park, Minneapolis, suburb and I got my first job and you know gone through all the training and it was the first night and I was up on like this little balcony part and I had five tables six tables whatever it was and uh, the manager comes along and he's helped me at different points and he's doing this and he's doing that and so on and so forth this is the first waiting tables job I'd ever had I went on to wait tables off and on for like 12 years whatever and he pulled me aside afterwards and he said uh, he said, Sven, you know, you did good. You did this, you did this, this, with this. Well, what do you think you didn't do well, blah, blah, blah. And then he said this, Sven, you can't be afraid to ask for help. 
That's what I'm here for as your manager. That's what the, the chefs, the cooks, the other servers are for. We're all here to help each other. But if you don't ask for help, I can't always help you. I did this time because I'm keyed in and I knew this was coming for several other servers, et cetera, et cetera. But you have to ask for help. What's well, the same in this case with your son? You have to be willing to ask for help and you have to heal yourself. Or even if he is getting help, you're not gonna be able to parent fully. You have to get your shit out, as I always say. Well, fine humans, this has been just a lovely, delightful episode. I wanna thank you all for tuning in, especially over on YouTube. It's great to have you here, here on TikTok. Facebook crapped out because my uh, <laughs> I forgot to plug in my computer. So if you're a Facebook follower, I am sorry. Rob, thoughts on today? Well, you got the goo off the beans for sure. But if there was ever any question about, are you authentic? Is the show authentic? Your reaction to the question and the response about the paraplegics, the quadriplegic, put all of those concerns to rest forever, as far as I'm concerned. So very, very well done, my friend. Very well done. I didn't do anything. I just felt that shit, man. Jesus. Wow. You know, the pain, people's pain. Wow, wow, wow. And the beauty of of her comment. That was so beautiful, you know. Ugh, hopeful, but ugh. So, you guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, it's been another great episode of the Badass Counseling Show for everyone from Australia to South Africa and the U.S. and Canada and the U.K. Have a kick-ass day. The Badass Counseling Show is strictly copyrighted. No copies may be made without the express written consent of the Badass Counseling Show, LLC. The Badass Counseling Show is produced by Karen Camparelli and Robert H. Friedman. Executive producer, Sven Erlinson. Original music by two-time Emmy Award-winning composer, Trevor Morris. Have a kick-ass day.